Welcome to In His Grip with Dr. Chuck Betters, Senior Pastor at Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. In His Grip is a daily broadcast presented by Mark Inc. Ministries. Today's sermon is taken from a series of messages by Dr. Betters entitled The Grapes of Wrath, which describes the ministry of Isaiah in Israel and Judah over the course of 60 years. Today's message is the continuation of The Grapes of Wrath, Part 2. Dr. Betters introduces the third common characteristic of ancient Israel and the church today, which is rationalism, a state of mind that demands that God prove himself to man and denies the miraculous. Rationalism started in ancient times, continued during the time of Christ with the Sadducees, and is alive in modern liberal religious teaching. Let's join Dr. Betters as he continues this series. They make a jump that I believe is too big of a jump to make. Now here's the jump that they make. They say, you know what we need to do? We need to speak with relevance to our culture. We need to speak with clarity to our culture. Now that sounds good, but now here is where the trouble begins. We need to change the language. We need to accommodate the changing society around us. We need to begin to structure our preaching and our teaching and our worship so that the average non-Christian will not be offended. We need to engage our culture because our churches are falling apart and our churches in America are falling apart while others around the world are not. And so therefore we must accommodate our culture in order to engage our culture. Where it fails is in determining that the reason for such rapid growth worldwide of the church and the contrasting fall of the European and the American church is that in the world church, they have refused to bow to the pressures of meeting people's, quote, felt needs, which is a buzzword of church growth, over against their real need. Here is where the average unchurched man is looking for in a church. Here is what he is seeking for in a church. He wants his felt need to be addressed. But don't talk about his real need. I engaged a man recently in a public setting of other pastors. I don't mind telling you he's a well-respected theologian and a well-respected church growth expert. But I want to tell you he's dead wrong. One of the questions I raised in that setting with all the other pastors sitting there was this. I said, how is it that we make the jump from analyzing the world church where there is such great growth? And neither did most of the pastors sitting there. But I believe we have an inherent danger in this system because you see years later, this is all going to cycle out. And what we're going to be left with is a church system that has met everybody's felt needs but has failed to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and we will be thrust more into our apostasy than we are today. You see, the seminarians are being taught this stuff. The pastors of struggling churches go to these conferences. And they come home all psyched up and fired up to engage their culture, to meet their felt needs, to speak the language of the average man. Nowhere in scripture do the, do the people who are the people of God engage their culture in such a way so as to compromise the message. One example this man used in our little public exchange. 
which I wish we had a little more time to develop, but it was close to the break, so we couldn't develop it too much more. One of the illustrations was the woman at the well. He says Jesus met her at her point of felt need. Did he? Is that what he did? Did he meet her at her point of felt need? He said, give me something to drink. She said, why are you asking me for something to drink? Don't you know Jews and Sumerians don't have anything in common? He said, if you knew who it was that was asking you for something to drink, you'd ask of him, he'd give you water of life. And that exchange goes on. And finally, he says to her in the matter of that one brief conversation, go call your husband. And what does she say? I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. Talk about engaging somebody at the point of their real need. You see, I don't understand the jump we're making. If we want to be like the South Korean church, then maybe we ought to live in the danger of invasion from North Korea. If we want to live like the, the Latin American church or the Russian churches, then maybe we ought to live in the environment of persecution and suffering that comes with anarchy. And I think that's what's wrong with the American church. We're hedonistic. We're too self-oriented, pleasure-oriented. What's in it for me? What are the pleasures for me? The liberal mainline churches across this country boast of millions of members. Are they right? The Mormon church is growing by thousands and thousands of people. Are they right? The fastest growing cult is the Jehovah's Witnesses. Are they right? And what about the Unitarians who offend nobody? Are they right? The answer is no. Simple numbers does not mean you're right. Don't be rigid in your doctrine because you see the average baby boomer, he's appalled by rigidity. Don't talk about the fact that there's a virgin birth. Don't talk about the miraculous in the Bible. Don't talk about doctrine that binds me. Give me freedom to believe whatever I want to believe. Give me choices. Give the average church member a remote control when he comes to church. So if he doesn't like the channel, he can switch it. He can get what he wants. A potpourri of incorrect doctrine. Don't be rigid. Hedonism. Hedonism. Don't make my commitment inconvenient to my routine. You see, the average baby boomer out there, he doesn't want to make any commitments. Make it easy for me to be a Christian. Accommodate my needs so that when I come to your church, you ask nothing of me. What I give, I give freely, so long as it doesn't interrupt my routine, so long as it doesn't become inconvenient. Hedonism. Don't ask me to make any long-term commitments, we're told, because the average baby boomer sitting out there, he only wants to invest in short-term projects. I'm in it for the short run, and if I don't like it, I get out. You see, if something better comes along, I'm out of here. Color me gone. I'm history. Nothing long-term. 
And get this, the average baby boomer says, I want my privacy. And I want to respect the privacy of others, so don't ever ask me to share my faith. Hedonism, a second of the sins, a second of Isaiah's grapes of wrath. Let's look at a third one. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we may see it. Let it approach. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. Now see, here's a picture of a beast harnessed to and dragging a cart with cords of deceit and falsehood. By holding on to what is false, the people of Judah bound themselves to sin. What starts out, by the way, notice the change of the words, what starts out as cords become cart ropes. What starts out as what pulls the cart becomes a rope that binds, that's unbreakable. Notice he puts together two words, sin and wickedness, sin and iniquity. Anytime you find those two words mentioned in the same verse, when used together, they point to both a behavior that is evil and an attitude that is evil. You see what he's talking about here is an arrogance. And here's the arrogance. God, prove yourself to me. Prove yourself to me. Why? Because they're wrapped up in sin. They demand that God prove that he is who he says he is. Here is a skepticism which doubts that God is at all involved in the world. A blindness which cannot see his hand at work and thus a blindness that denies the supernatural. Here are men and women who are so wrapped up in their sin, they demand of God proof. They say God cannot be involved in the things of this world, that there is no such thing as a supernatural, that there is no such thing as the miraculous. That there is no transcending God who also involves himself in the affairs of men. God, prove yourself to me. Prove you are who you say you are. Practical atheism, hedonism, the third sin, rationalism. I want to tell you, rationalism is alive and well today. An arrogance that demands that God proves himself. And I want to tell you, this denial of the supernatural is at the heart of modern day rationalism. It's nothing new. In the New Testament, it was the theology of the Sadducees. Remember any time you read about Jesus dealing with the Sadducees? They were the rationalists of that day. They said there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no angel, there's no, there's no devil, there's no, there's no resurrection. They denied everything that was supernatural. And then later when the church was given birth and when the apostles started going out, the, the rationalism took on a form of heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism said, well, the spirit is basically good, matter is basically evil, and in its extreme form, they said Jesus was not really a man. He couldn't have really been a man. Therefore, he didn't really die on a cross, because, you see, he wasn't really flesh. 
Why? Because all flesh was evil. So he didn't really physically rise from the dead because he never really physically was crucified in the first place. Early heresy called Gnosticism. Spirit is good, matter is evil. Christ could not really have been flesh and blood. Denial, the, denial of the resurrection, denial of the supernatural, denial of everything that was called miraculous in the Bible. All of the miracles of the Bible were demythologized. Take the myth out, get to the kernel of truth. Rationalism is alive and well in the church today. In fact, I will go as far as to say this to you. The system of rationalism that we see inherent in Gnosticism and in the Sadducees is the prevalent philosophy and theology of ministry preached and taught in just about every major seminary in the country today. What does John 1, 1 say? John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, the word became what? Flesh. Why do you think he said that? Because the, the heresy of Gnosticism was already in full bloom. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul would say to the Colossian Christians in chapter 1, once you were alienated from God, you were the enemies, your minds because of the evil behavior, you were the enemies of God. But now he has reconciled you by Christ, listen, by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which Paul, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Notice what he says. He says that Jesus physically died. Jesus physically rose from the dead. Why is he saying that? Because of the Gnostics in the church. In the second chapter of Colossians, verse 8, he would say, See to it that no one takes you captive, listen, through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now he's going to define that hollow and deceptive philosophy. Which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, listen, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Why did he say that? Because of the Gnostics. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. You see, Gnosticism, rationalism, the denial of the supernatural is not new. It's not new. I've always wondered what the Gnostic, heretical, rationalistic, mainline preachers say when they go to a funeral. I've always wondered what they could possibly say to somebody. What comfort could they possibly give them? What hope? What could they possibly say to make that person cling to any semblance of hope? What would I have done if I were one of those preachers? When on July 6, 1993, I held my son's dead body in my arms. What would I say? This is it. This is all there is. Hang it up. Pack it in. There is no resurrection. My purpose, he says, Paul says, is that they may be encouraged in heart 
and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see what he's doing? He's setting up two contrasting systems. One in which the wisdom and knowledge of God that reveals itself supernaturally and the sufficiency of Christ's work is held in sharp contrast to what the Gnostics believe, what the rationalists believe, what the Sadducees believe, and what the liberals today believe about spiritual issues. Christ our sufficiency or the sufficiency of your own mind and your own wisdom. The two are set in dire opposition to each other. You see, the rationalists believed that every man had a spark of deity inside of him. And that this spark was the key to unlocking the mysteries of knowledge in order for you to gain great spiritual illumination. Inside of you was the key that unlocks the door to the mysteries of the unknown. And you know what happened? It caused many in the early church to seek hidden knowledge beyond what God had revealed to us in his word. Two sets of Christians were established. Those who know it and those who do not. Those to whom great revelation was given, those to whom great revelation wasn't given. New ageism, rationalism, you see, what we have done is we've rewritten the scriptures. Do you know why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you know why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? According to the Metropolitan Community Churches of America, which is the homosexual church. Do you know why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Because they were inhospitable. They were, I'm not kidding you. You think I'm kidding. They have taken scriptural license to try to demonstrate that the reason God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah was because the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were homophobic. What deception. You see, we're rewriting the code. If we don't like something in the Bible, throw it out. Rewrite it. That's rationalism. That's the thinking, that's the mindset of those who deny the supernatural. If the revelation of God's character and God's nature given us in the word is insufficient, then we are forced to do one of two things. Either change that revelation or search elsewhere for some hope or comfort. Anything but face the fact that God is who he says he is. God has revealed himself a certain way. And thus saith the Lord, period, exclamation point. If we don't like it, rewrite it. Change it. Why? Because wisdom has been given to us. Some professor somewhere has decided that he can demythologize and decode the scriptures. Now, I've been in the ministry since 1968. <clears throat> I went to seminary back in the late 60s. And I got to tell you, this was in full bloom back then. I had many, many arguments with my professor of Old Testament who denied the supernatural. He would rewrite the scriptures. He would pull out his Masoretic text that only six people in the whole country can read in the first place. And he would try to prove his positions. 
denying that God has revealed himself in a supernatural context. It didn't take long for the professor of New Testament to come out with the same kinds of things. So you had an Old Testament professor and a New Testament professor controlling the Bible departments of one of the one-time most evangelical seminaries in the whole country. Those two men refused to sign a doctrinal statement. I remember it clearly. I remember Dr. Carl F.H. Henry, one of the leading evangelical scholars of our day, walked into that classroom and announced to us that he would never, ever come back to that seminary because the men who were the professors of Old and New Testament refused to sign a statement saying they believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. This is not new. This is the theology I was raised with. And I would imagine if I went back to that same school, I would find that the same things we argued about that were controversial then are now acceptable as truth. I remember one time we went to a chapel service. The chapel service, to our absolute amazement, was a communion service. You say, well, what's so strange about that? It was a communion service conducted by the Hare Krishna cult. And we were celebrating a communion service with Hare Krishna pictures and statues and everything else. And the bread was being offered up in the name of Hare Krishna. We stood up. And we said, this is evil. We actually disrupted the service and said, this is evil. And we encouraged the other seminary students to walk out. And we were the ones chastised by the professors of Old and New Testament for being too narrow and not open to the cultures and religious changes of others. It's not new. That happened 20-some years ago. But it's more so today than ever before. Rationalism, the denial of the supernatural. For that reason, I believe we are primed primed for either judgment or revival. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm praying for revival. I'm praying that God would purge his church of the subtle heresies, of the direct heresies, of the obvious heresies, and that he would bring this church into the forefront of church leadership, may we never be a people who compromise the message of Jesus Christ. While this series may seem dark and depressing as we listen to the way that God handled the sin of the Israelites, actually the glory of God's story is on every page of Scripture. God keeps His promises, and no matter how broken our world seems, God has not lost control his word is unchanging and true. I'm Sharon Betters, and our team is so glad to know that God is using this broadcast to help turn hearts toward the only hope we have, the hope of Jesus and his unchanging love. We have prepared many free resources available on our website to reinforce this message of grace. Our Learning to See When the Lights Go Out audio library includes numerous stories of redemption where people share their own story to trust God when their worlds were turned upside down by circumstances beyond their control. 
Ron, please share with our listeners how they can access these resources, as well as how they can join us online for worship every Sunday if they don't have a home church. Thank you for joining us today for the message from the Grapes of Wrath series. If you would like to receive a copy of this entire sermon, you can contact Mark 8 Ministries and request the Grapes of Wrath Part 2 or simply reference sermon number 94-35. Mark Inc. Ministries can be reached toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. Check out our website at www.markinc.org. Did you know you can share today's message with a friend or family member? Or download today's message in its entirety free on our website? simply visit us at www.markinc.org. You can also call us if you like at toll-free 877-627-5462. That's 877-MARK-INC. Mark Inc. Ministries provides help and hope to hurting people. Be sure to join us online for more information about our many resources. Mark Inc. Ministries is a nonprofit ministry that appreciates your ongoing prayers and support. For more information, or if you would like to email us, visit our website at markinc.org. We would also like to invite you to join us for our Sunday morning service at Glasgow Church. The church is located at 2880 Summit Bridge Road in Bear, Delaware, and our service begins at 10.30 a.m. each Sunday morning. If you are unable to attend the service in person, you can join our live stream from anywhere by going to our website at www. .glasgowchurch.com If you would like to contact us at the church, we can be reached at area code 302-834-4772 or through our website at glasgowchurch.com Thank you again for listening to today's broadcast. Be sure to join us tomorrow as Dr. Betters continues this challenging series, The Grapes of Wrath. Have a blessed day and remember that God is sovereign and you can trust Him as long as you are in his grip.